Hello and welcome to episode 60 of Random Encounter, the RPG Fan Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Steinman, Pale Robbie on the boards. We got a big one for you today. Uh, we decided to take a little look at narrative in video games. Uh, we seem to have a lot of really divisive opinions on our message boards, and so we decided to bring in an expert panel today to talk about narrative in video games, especially the RPGs, what we feel about them, what we think are good narrative elements, what we think are bad ones. So joining me today, we have the leader of the podcast, uh, the music podcast, rather, the music podcast. That's technically Derek and me. Oh, I, I want to see a fight breakout between the two of you, so that's why I dropped it like that. Well, I already dis- I already disarmed the bomb. Stephen Myring, Taylor's on the boards, co-host. You notice how he spoke first, Derek? Yeah, well, it's just because I couldn't think of anything really insulting to throw out there. I've had a glass of wine. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say it. My name's Derek. I'm Embryon on the boards, and I'm also a co-host of Rhythm Encounter and video games. Yes, yes, video games. And now the man who hates every JRPG in existence. I don't know if I want my name attached to that, but I'm Kyle. <laughs> Kyle, we I loved your article about Nino Cooney, and I don't care what any hater says. I, I totally got what you were saying there. I, I don't think the article is about Nino Cooney. It uses Nino Cooney as a jumping off point, and I think I don't even agree with some of Kyle's examples, but I still agree with his overarching point, and I, I really think that it's important that even if you don't think you're going to agree with something, as long as it's not written to to bludgeon your viewpoint, you should read it and it, you can strengthen your own viewpoint by reading something that's counter to it. And I, I think it's a well-written and well-thought-out article that should make you think twice. I would 100% agree. Uh, it's kind of like when Richard Garriott said that uh, you know most game designers compared to him are crappy. And I said, you know what, I'm sure he didn't actually say that. Let me read the full article. And then it turned out, sure enough, Richard Garriott was just being a dick. Can we say that? I can say he's being a dick. <laughs> yeah, he was being a dick. And I'll also say that I agree with Kyle. I agree with Kyle. Well, I, no. No, that's not true. I don't agree with Kyle. Wine. Uh, <clears throat> I think it was a well-written article. <laughs> and I don't agree with Kyle. <laughs> oh, my God. Get me off this show. Okay. Kyle, we're all here for you, big guy, all right? Well, you guys are biased, but thank you. It's true. It's true. And then we brought the old crotchety man to tell us about how narrative in games used to be so much better back in his time. That's right, Dave Yeager, cleverly named D. Yeager on the boards, so you'll never be able to match me up. <laughs> so Dave, he's going to start it, because I think he might have one of the oldest games to talk about on this show right now. Uh, and, and as I, we always like to point out, Dave is the, the old man of the group, so he was playing the games back in like the old Tammy Ultimate days, and going <laughs> around with Lord British before he was a dick. And he's going to tell us about which game right now. He was Dave, how are you di- tolerating he was this? A, he was always a dick. Yes, I mean, he built he a castle for crying out loud. Yeah, but then he got assassinated. <laughs> <laughs> built a castle and then went into space with the Russians, no less. Yeah, exactly. Well, regardless, I'm starting with uh, Baldur's Gate 2 Shadows of Am, which I still think is uh, one of the best... Uh, written RPGs, and I think it's a great example as a jumping-off point here for narrative in general, because narrative encompasses a number of different things. It encompasses, you know, writing, uh, the quality of the actual prose, uh, and encompasses uh, the storytelling aspect, and encompasses the character development, and I think Baldur's Gate 2 is able to do all those things. It's got one of the most memorable villains uh, probably in the history of video games with John Irenicus, um, 
And I think that a lot of what made Baldur's Gate 2 what still makes it stand so tall uh, narrative-wise is that there's just the sheer overwhelming volume of story and uh, you know, in the game. And I, I, I was going to ask you guys, you know, you, uh, you young kids, uh, what, do, <laughs> what you think of the, what you think uh, of the, the fact that like so many of these games have so much voiceover now, and obviously that you know kind of limits the amount you can do uh, because you need to bring voice actors in to actually record uh, the the writing that what's what's been written. And one of the things that Baldur's Gate was able to do is it didn't have to worry about any of that. It recorded a couple of lines here and there, but it's just pages and pages and pages of text see just speaking for me personally i am very uh of two minds when it comes to either the the text or the voiceover when there's voiceover i'm very like keen on on the intonation on how the line delivery is being read to me when you have like something in skyrim or oblivion or fallout where they're just staring at you and just speaking to you I really don't like that kind of dialogue system. I'm not really a fan of that kind of storytelling. But at the same time, if I met with a wall of text, I think we all do this sometimes where we get that wall of text when we, when we open up a journal in a video game and we just go, uh, TLDR. Like, I just don't want to be taken away from that. But that said, there are times where that can be a really co- important beat to maybe not the overall narrative, but maybe a side story or maybe a side quest. So it is something important that you do want to read. But I I just have this feeling like the first time I open up a piece of text and it's too long, if I'm really into the gameplay, I don't want to take the time to read. I actually found I had a really hard time with that in Skyrim. Like every time I opened up a book, I was like, well, I'm kind of in a room right now trying to assassinate this dude. So I'm going to put this 18th volume of the Lords of Cyrodiil back on the wall, kill him, and then I'll come back and read it. And then, of course, I never go back to reading it. Well, you made a good example with Skyrim. And like another example I'd bring up would be like something like Kingdoms of Amalar that had a lot of lore in it and like but really in order to progress things all you needed to do was pick the first option one of the things that's great about Baldur's Gate 2 is that every choice you make matters to every single character in the party to things that happen later in the game and there's so many possible dialogue outcomes i mean you have dialogue options when you've got like eight different things and no ma- and every single thing you choose matters you know like i mean i think that's part of what makes people more willing to you know, read through a wall of text. If it's just something in a journal, who cares? Tell me how many, you know, tell me how many orcs I have to go kill. I, I agree. I, I have to agree a little bit more with Dave here in that regard because I don't mind a large amount of text if it's presented well. You know, if, you, if you're just walking around, like, you know, Final Fantasy Thirteen has a big a lore journal. Here we go. No, I'm, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not that. It, it has a lore journal, but the game never says hey, check this lore journal out, and you don't really need to know it. It's not really pertinent. Whereas, you know, with a game like Baldur's Gate, you know, reading stuff, it's, it's, it's not just an afterthought when you have all this extra flavor text and you can right-click any item in the game and you can get the story of your legendary items. I mean, how cool is that? It's not like one or two sentences. Sometimes you'll get like a two-paragraph story of why your sword is called the face beater. And, <laughs> you know, there's... I think there's Spoiler, really said for it that. beats faces. <laughs> Spoiler alert. And I don't actually mind the lack of voice. That was one of my first Western RPGs, and it's part of the reason why I still like that style of game a lot, too, because it's a different kind of experience, and it's why I don't really like games like Skyrim as much, because I don't like, here's a crap load of lore. None of it really, well, if you like it, it's cool. But Baldur's Gate tied that lore in in a way that made it meaningful to me. 
And I didn't mind having to read a lot of it because you run to the other end of the spectrum. You have a game like Dragon Age 2, which is same, a lot of the same developers. But now that the dialogue is voiced, your choices are reduced in number and they're reduced in breadth. That's, there's that joke image on the internet that shows the final selection in Planescape Torment, which is you know a, a similar in style to Baldur's Gate, but more role-playing oriented, where you have these like two or three sentence responses and you have like eight of them. And then there's the opening cutscene in Dragon Age 2 where you're, you're playing as Hawk and all you can say is, I'm going to kill you and I want to be a dragon. I, I even felt that between Dragon Age 1 and 2. Oh, the number of options were severely limited. So I think with... The actual, with the inclusion of fully voice, full voiceover, you can maybe be brought into the scene more and maybe feel like you're more a part of an immersive experience. But I think they they can't record every dialogue option, and sometimes it's just easier to have a text option. I know that the uh, uh, Shadowrun Returns, which is something I'm really, really excited about playing this summer, they said they're just going with text because it allows them to have more options available. It allows them to have different permutations and let the tree of dialogue options build out. So I think that's something that you it's very hard to get that back with a full voiceover. I think that's what you run into with Fallout 1 and 2 versus Fallout 3 in New Vegas. I, I didn't feel like the dialogue was as meaningful in New Vegas and 3 because since it was all voiced, you know, they were a little more limited in terms of what they could do. Whereas with the first one, I mean, you could get through so much of the game just by being a smooth talker. So it, I, I didn't really feel encouraged to focus on conversation and speechcraft in Bethesda's games, particularly Fallout versus Fallout 1 and 2, where I, my guy was, like, maxed out charisma and, like, all the time. I was like, you should totally let me buy here and don't shoot me in the face, please. And they'd be like, okay. That sounds like wherever Derek goes. Like, he's just talking to people about, like, hey, you need to give me stuff. Me? <laughs> I don't, I'm trying to get you into the conversation, dude. You're being quiet well, and drinking well, your I, wine. Well, I haven't played Baldur's Gate 2, so I don't, I mean, well, I can't does, anything specific to the game, at least. This dovetails nicely, bringing up Dragon Age 2 into one of the games that Rob wanted to talk about, right? And this is kind of the other end of the spectrum. <laughs> so, so like, I don't hate Dragon Age 2. I, I, I actually really like the Kunari stuff in the second act of the game. I thought that was a really cool, like, hey, this is an interesting culture. Like, I, I don't know how to respond to these people. There's this really good, like, alienness to speaking with a people that you don't understand. I think that was one of the first times in a video game where I was like, wow, I really don't understand these people, and I'm making an ass out of myself talking to them. And then you get to the end of Dragon Age 2, and uh, yeah, we have a note at the beginning of this podcast that there's a lot of spoilers going on, so in case you didn't take that seriously, I'm about ready to spoil the end of Dragon Age 2. At the end of Dragon Age 2, they make it feel like, oh, you have a choice between siding with the mages or the Templars. And the Templars are trying to control the mages, and the mages want to break free of the Templars. And I was like, man, that's that's kind of cool. Like, I could either side with the mages or the Templar. No, what happens is you side with the mages and kill the Templar leader, and then the mage leader goes evil, and then you have to kill the mage leader. So it really doesn't matter which order you do it in. Because you're going to kill them both. Yep, you're just going to kill them both. And this is like... This is the antithesis of what they said they wanted to do. They they want to make this meaningful choice. They want to make this you're making a decision between two distinct sides. And then all of a sudden, yes, and that, I was going to say Kyle, that jingling you hear is the scotch that Jackie just made for me. So this podcast might get really interesting right now. <laughs> I I actually I I agree. I actually thought the characters were enjoyable in Dragon Age 2. I don't think they were quite up to some of BioWare's other standards, but Hawk as a whole was a lot more engaging than the the warden from the first game because he had a personality you know the, or he had a voice 
And normally I wouldn't say that, but I, I just certain characters I didn't like. Like I didn't like the pirate chick because I felt like she was just blatant fan service and whatever. But I and Anders, you know, his personality changed. But overall, I was engaged enough that I played through the game. And then it really felt like a cop out or like they ran out of time, especially with the combat design, you know, in terms of, oh, well, yeah, you have this these two meaningful and neither side is right. The, the Templars are just trying to protect people. And a lot of the mages do go blood mage. But then the mages are being forced into it. But then it's like it's undermined by the fact that every important mage goes goes to blood magic and every Templar is crazy overzealous. So it's like, well, neither of them are right yet because they're both wrong. So it's like, well, either way, you lose. I guess we all agree. Silence yep. is ascent. Well, I, I think that's the problem is that we we really have this point where we all kind of agree that storytelling in Baldur's Gate 2 allows for many different options. It allows for this like spiraling tree of narration and learning things and all these different side stories. But then as games have become bigger, they've become more complex. You have more money being funneled into these things. You have voiceover. It's starting to constrict that open-ended nature. And I, I don't think we're all asking for a return to the open-ended nature, but I think what we're kind of like, we're lamenting right now the loss of really feeling like, let, let's be honest here, all these all these games like Baldur's Gate, they were recreating Dungeons and & Dragons. And now we're, we're all nerds here, pretty, pretty much, and I'm sure Dave has stories of playing advanced Dungeons & Dragons. Me, personally, I came in on 3rd edition. And, like, you want to have... I know, I know. Oh, God, the math involved in that was just, you needed a calculus degree to figure that stuff out. Oh, jeez. Yeah, in that I, case, you should definitely never play Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. <laughs> I have to calculate my FACO. Uh, and, and so, <laughs> I, I thank you. Why thank is that you. funny? You do. Because <laughs> well, I remember playing Baldur's Gate 2 when I was a kid. Well, not when I was a kid, I was, you know, I was in middle school. But I'm playing it, and I'm like, what the hell is FACO? And I'm like, I don't understand the numbers in this game at all. So I thought I was being a badass by... Not wearing any armor, I was like, well, my number's higher. That makes sense. I, I grew up playing Fantasy Star. I want higher defense. Ooh. And then I played a mage with, like, 3 HP. So every fight, I'm like, why am I getting one-shotted every single time? <laughs> doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but I, I think that that's what, like, with Baldur's Gate, they were using the, the Dragon Age license, were they not? Like, they, uh, Dragon Age license. They were using the Dungeons & Dragons license. They were D&D in it. Yeah, they were D&D in it. So they're trying to recreate... The feeling of having a group of group of guys and gals sitting around playing a tabletop RPG and being able to interact with. And I, some of the, my favorite memories of being a kid were when my buddy Bill, who was always our DM, and like me and him just going back and forth and like just having crazy dialogue where we were just thinking outside the box and trying stuff. And no matter what you do with a video game, you're going to reach a point where they're like, okay, I can't include every possible response. So in terms of dialogue and narration in video games, there's a limit. And I think that the limit is being pushed further and further down by having full narration and, and more linear gameplay. Well, I mean, uh, like, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to agree with Rob. Well, I one of the things that we're, we play role-playing games because we want agency, right? I mean, like, we play certain types of games, you know, storytelling adventure games or whatever we don't mind being pulled through a story uh like we know that like we're just trying to solve puzzles and get through and you know see what happens like with role-playing games it's preferred that we have some kind of agency because the point is you're playing a role and i think that you when you bring in the voice the voiceovers and things like that you start to eliminate some of that agency and that makes it more difficult 
you know, to really get invested in it. And it, when you take away, like, and when your choices don't feel like they matter, you don't feel like you're playing really a role-playing game anymore. You feel like you're playing something on rails. That doesn't mean it's a bad game or a bad story. It just means that, you know, it's not as... The experience I don't is different. Think it, exactly. Well, now, to, to switch the argument a little bit and kind of push us away from Baldur's Gate and, and maybe into another area... I want to stop. I want to go with what you just said about uh, having you're playing a role. And now, without tossing flame bait out there, I want to ask what are people's opinions then of the JRPG? Because when I'm playing Final Fantasy VII, I don't think I'm Cloud. I'm controlling Cloud. I really don't have any decisions to make besides do you give the flower to Tifa or do you not? Like. I, there, I think there aren't a lot of choices there in terms of narrative. It's a very different narrative structure, so I'm kind of shifting there, that to the to the JRPG side right now. Yeah, I mean, it's it's two different modes of storytelling, and neither is better. Some might prefer one or the other, but neither is intrinsically better. I mean, it's and you, I, I personally, I don't want every game to be. A certain way. I want a variety of different kinds of stories, so I can enjoy both. I agree. I think. Uh, I think it for, just depends on what you want. Yeah, whatever kind of mood you're in. Like there are times where I really want to play. You know, when I started playing Persona Four Golden last month, that was really what I wanted to play. Was like a, a being told a story. I didn't want to. You know, I didn't want an experience like Planescape where I'm picking. You know, I'm manipulating everything. You know, I wanted to be, you know, told a story with characters that I like. So that was good. But then there are other times where I sit down and I'm like, well, you know, I'd really like to play a role in this game. You know, a couple of months back, I, for the first time ever, I DM'd a tabletop Mass Effect game where we used a rule set and I wrote a plot. And I had a lot of fun in that with my friends. Like, I, I would come up with some sort of scenario and they would, it would be really exciting to see how they would manipulate everything in the game that I had created and then I would react to that as I made the story so it's like we were you know we were created we were the agents of the story we weren't being told the story right so no totally different kind of experience I agree with you because I think like you know Simon Belmont does not have a decision to make about whether or not he's going to storm Dracula's castle you're following him through a narrative you're you're following him through level design it's a constructed experience and there's nothing wrong with that. We, we just got done talking about an absolutely amazing game that shall remain nameless. Uh, cause it's not an RPG that is very much an on rails game and it has a single narrative, but you're playing it and I found it to be absolutely enthralling. So I, I agree with you. I don't think you need to have the agency of deciding how to put forth the narrative and making decisions. That's not necessary, but I will say that, Having those decisions in video games gives me a stronger connection, especially if, and this gets to characters in video games, when I personally don't behave the same way as a character, or I don't I don't understand why a character would do what they're going to do, not necessarily that they're poorly written, but they are not a proper reflection of what I would do in such a situation, then by giving me no choice, then I'm suddenly taken out of the experience and I'm going, wow, Squall is just an ass. And, like, well, I would not act like that. I think that's kind of an egocentric viewpoint, though. It, oh, yeah. It depend, it, I mean, it, it, everybody's personal tastes are different. Like, I personally, I gravitate towards the kind of games where, like you said, you're told a story um, just because a lot of the time I feel like in Western RPGs typically is the way that, is, is the way that, that falls. But 
in a lot of Western RPGs or even Japanese RPGs where they give you a greater amount of control on how the story unfolds, they usually don't do as good of a job actually fleshing out each of those options. That's like, true. sure, you can decide, you know, are you going to, like, are you going to take the red pill or the blue pill or whatever? But it, in a game where they only give you the one choice, they've spent more time and put more thought into actually executing that one narrative than they would if they had to write two. I mean, that's not a 100% hard and fast rule. It just seems like that's the way that oh, it goes a, good, a lot of the time. Yeah, that's a really I, good point, Derek. And, it, you know, what else I'd say is that when you're presented the option of choices, uh, you that gives you an expectation as a player or as the consumer that the choices will matter. Otherwise, what's the point? Right. Exactly. I, I think to to bring in a counterexample and a supporting example, you have, you know, you have like Skyrim or Oblivion where... You, you, you have these choices in developing your character and in how you're going to finish quests, but the plot is relatively, I mean, I'm going to say bad, but I'm sure there are people that like it. But you're watching other important people do things because they, they, they ran up against, well, how do we make this character, the Dragonborn, matter in the context of this plot? And the answer is, well, you're there. You're the muscle. The other people are the brains. But then on the other hand, you have a game like Mass Effect, which people got really mad that just one single part of the game. I mean, even I was upset. The ending doesn't re- didn't reflect your choices as well as people. Some people expected it to, and people flipped out because the rest of the series did such a good job reflecting creating this narrative and these characters with personal stories that revolved around you and your choices. That's a success story in that regard, I think. But like Derek said, I think that's the exception, not the general rule. When that's, it comes to Western games, that's Stephen Myrink. Talos on the boards. He hates Skyrim. You heard it here first. <laughs> I think we all kind of hated on Skyrim a little bit, but but it's it's true. I was gonna. Everybody kind of said it already, but I was just gonna add that like, I'm not necessarily saying that I would prefer to be playing something like Skyrim over playing Final Fantasy VIII and, and Squall. I don't like Squall as a character, but I'll tell you what, I have a stronger sense of his character than I do when I'm playing Skyrim and I'm just like nameless dude number 47 and I only have a few yeah. limited number of dialogue options. I literally don't have a voice. And right, that, I agree. Didn't you now there's a disc- to the song. Hmm? You didn't listen to the song? Oh, Dova King, you're not some nameless guy. You're the Dragonborn. I know, but like, uh, think think about other games uh, to, to move outside the RPG genre just briefly. Uh, I think that one of the major hang-ups in Dishonored is the fact that the main character isn't voiced. I think that really detracts from the game. I mean, we all remember Garrett from the Thief series and how much of a joy it was to play this really snarky character and get this strong sense of his character and then you have Corvo in Dishonored, who is just completely uh, a silent protagonist. But then again, you also have the ultimate best silent protagonist, which is Chrono, because of the characters that are built around him. See, I was going to say, I don't mind a silent protagonist, and I, I feel like there's a lot of backlash against that now. Like, especially on we had on our forums, as I, in general, it seems to me, maybe I'm misreading it, that the sentiment is we don't like silent protagonists because they're a, a bad storytelling crutch. And I can appreciate that viewpoint, because sometimes they are. But on the other hand, I, I didn't feel like Corvo was a bad character. Corvo was meant to be an outlet for you to interact with the story. So, you know, when you get to the drawings that, you, that certain people do or when certain things happen, it, it's meant to be you. Like, you are Corvo, and that's his personality, is whatever you choose to reflect onto him. Mm-hmm. And, again, I guess I could understand why somebody would say that's a weak storytelling method, but that was the, what they were going for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think there's absolutely room for both, though. And I, I know that you're not disputing that, um, but a game like a game like uh, Persona 4 does a really interesting 
they, they apply that in an interesting way because the main character is kind of a blank slate, but he has little nuances of personality that shine through when you make different dialogue choices. Um, and I felt like when they made that into an anime, which I think it's an, an excellent anime, um, they, they really made his personality like they, they took it in one direction. And it was a little bit jarring as somebody who's played the game so much to be like, whoa, like, that's not necessarily how I imagine him to react. He's hooking up with Chie. I never would have done that. No, that's exactly what we should be doing. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Anybody yeah. who's on my Twitter knows how much I like Chie. But yeah. no, I, I even texted Derek. I watched the first couple episodes as I was playing the game. And I said, why is you such a jerk? And he's like, well, he gets nicer as he goes along. He gets nicer, but he's not necessarily... I mean, I still think he's cool. Like, I, I, yeah. I enjoy the way that they characterized him in the anime as well, but it's just different. So yeah. it's it's a cool contrast because the game presents him one way and the well, the game really presents him with like, you know, more of a blank slate, but the show presents him a different way. And that's a, a cool way to compare a silent protagonist versus an actual person with a personality. And that's also I don't want to get away from Persona 4 because we're about to talk about it, but just to throw it out there, like. Rob was saying how he doesn't empathize or understand why characters do things a certain way sometimes because it's not how he would react. But I think that a strength of characters that are actually written to be a certain way is that you can have characters that are awful, like characters that make poor decisions and characters that behave like little crapheads. And that's compelling sometimes. Like, I agree. Tales of the Abyss has a main character that's insufferable for like the first half of the game. Mm-hmm. And his growth is a really big part of how they present the story in that game, and because everybody so in your party, right? Everybody in your party at, in the first half of the game treats him like he—he's just a spoiled brat. Yep. Uh, so, and then in the later half of the game, it goes better. But anyway, I, can sorry, I, go can, ahead. Can I just jump off that real quick? Because Derek, that—that's a hundred percent true, and I'm really glad you brought that up. And this also allows me to give a little shout out to Stephen real quick. Uh, Hi. I'm, I'm I'm in the process of reading the Acacia trilogy, and I just started book three. and And Stephen, I'm really liking it. So thank you for the book recommendation. Uh, and in Acacia, there's a character named Corinne. Oh who, man, who is a character that is so she does some really awful, I, I would say, very selfish things. But she's written so beautifully, and you understand her thought process. It's kind of like um, we're recording this on the 31st right now, so this is the season premiere of uh, Game of Thrones Season 3 tonight. And a lot of people really hate uh, Cersei Lannister, the the queen's uh, uh, widow from uh, Season 2. And Cersei, you don't get any chapters in the books until the fourth book with Cersei. And when they started establishing her character and why she behaves the way she, she does that created a very, very strong connection between me and her. And so I agree with Derek. You can have absolutely insufferable, borderline awful characters, but if you write them properly, if you give them depth, if you give them a reason for the way that they act, then it becomes something very, very special. It's kind of like uh, Draco Malfoy in, uh, I think, in the Harry Potter books. He's like, he's, he's kind of a twit, and everybody kind of like... There are moments where they scoff at him or they scoff at Harry and not all the kids are siding with each other and you get more of his characterization. But in the movies, he's just a prat and you get no inclination for why he's behaving the way he does until uh, the the big moments in Half-Blood Prince. So that creates a disconnect where I'm sitting there going, well, why is he behaving like this? Like, I get that Squall's a jerk, but... It doesn't come until far later in the game that we establish why he's a jerk. I didn't mean to take away your, your argument there, Derek, but that was just something I was thinking about. No, you pretty much just and you expanded what I was going to say anyway. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's all about writing. Good narratives are all about convincing, and that's different from realistic, because you can have a completely unrealistic fantasy world with strange characters and um, you know the Wizard of Oz or something like that, just very whimsical and completely unrealistic. But it can still be convincing within that world. It can still be coherent. Yes. And so that's what it's really about, not necessarily realism. Sometimes it's realism. Sometimes it's fantasy. Sometimes it's science fiction or cyberpunk or whatever. You just have to have that internal consistency. When you set yeah, rules in about, your world, follow them. Yeah, it's about being convincing. And when that is broken, you start to get bad writing. Yep, yep. No, I, that's I, actually... That's actually why, and I won't stay on this topic long, but that's why I didn't like the movie Prometheus after I thought about it, because they set up a lot of rules in that movie, but then the characters didn't follow really basic stuff. Like, why would your biologist take off his helmet just because the atmosphere is oxygen on a foreign planet? You don't know what else is there. Yeah, exactly. It was like... <laughs> so uh, it, it, breaks the, it breaks your immersion because you're going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You set up, yes, this is a sci-fi universe, but these people are operating as they, they're not su- superhuman. They're just as vulnerable as we are, and I wouldn't be taking it off because I've, I've grown up watching sci-fi films. I know what happens when you inhale foreign yeah. particles and yeah, turn I, into an alien. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> so let's, let's pull back a little bit and, and get back to video games uh, real quick, and if I could be entirely selfish and bring up a video game that I wanted to talk about, uh, I want to talk about a game that has really stuck with me years after I played it in terms of narrative, and that would be Vagrant Story on the PS1. And Vagrant Story to me is one of the most deeply personal games I ever played, where you're playing a character that the entire crux of this story is about Ashley Riot and his place in the universe. And yeah, there's some magic and stuff going on, but it's really a tale about him and about his past and what is important to him and why he is special. And I I got to thinking that, you know, the thing that's really bothering me with a lot of narrative in video games, and also narrative in general, is when you have a very personal opening to a story. And then as the game or the novel or the movie continues to move forward, it becomes this, like, that individual versus the world, or that individual is out to, to save the world. And then the narrative and the characterization starts to pull back, And it becomes about the antagonist and this thing that you're fighting against rather than what is bringing these people together. And the problem with I I totally agree. Yeah, go ahead, Kyle. I I don't want to keep going. The thing is, like, drama is the building blocks of narrative. It is the it is what all narratives are constructed of. Good narratives, I guess. And the problem with those kind of narratives, you know, save the world kind of things is that there's really no drama. I mean, the drama that's there is just so banal that you can't connect with it. Yep. Uh, we watched, so it falls apart. We watched, uh, Jackie and I watched In Time the other night, which is that Justin Timberlake movie yeah. uh, by Andrew Nichol, the guy who did Gattaca, which, holy crap, if you haven't seen Gattaca, please go see that. Like, just get it on Netflix or something. It's a great film. And In Time starts as this very personal story about a guy you know, fighting against the system and, you know, finally having access to to uh, an invaluable resource. I don't want to give too much away. And then the movie just takes a sideways turn. It becomes a movie about, like, class warfare and about that individual leading a revolution. So it's no longer personal. It's no longer about him. He's fighting for a greater good. And then the movie just, it, like, flip-flopped. 
and it was no longer a personal tale. And I've got Stephen in the in the dialogue right now bringing up the Dark Knight. And I think that's why The Dark Knight is such a great film is because no matter how much the stakes are raised in that film, it's always about the personal relationships with the characters and about how things are moving. And that that keeps the drama going. Kyle's Kyle's point on the drama nails it. Everybody think about Final Fantasy seven real quick and how awesome the beginning of Final Fantasy seven is with all the characters intermingling and and coming up. There's conflict among the group. You know, Barrett doesn't like Cloud. Tifa really, 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 really wants Cloud. Uh, then you throw in Sid and all his baggage and Red 13. And then you get to a point like in the middle of the second disc where they're on the airship and they're like, there's no getting off this train. And the conflict has become against Sephiroth and there's no drama anymore. It's like, okay, we now have a goal, but it's come at the cost of the human element that is what has drawn me into the story. It's gone this, now. This I, is I, the problem. And it, it is – there are bad narratives obviously in films and books and everything. But the, the biggest challenge in video games is making it is, – is joining that gameplay with the plot. Oh, yeah. And I touched on this in my editorial because there's – what gets you from point A to point B? It's often a magic jewel. <laughs> there's nothing dramatic about trying to obtain a magic jewel or three of them or six of them or 15, whatever. I feel and like then, people would disagree with you, but I agree with you. Well, I think there's nothing inherently dramatic about needing to get a magic jewel, but if for whatever reason they're able to integrate that, you know, they're able to like spice up character interactions as a result of that impetus, like maybe. Yeah, but, but it's, I mean, it's, like, it's, it's like, rarely well, done. Easy, easy, easy. Everybody relax. Everybody relax. Since okay. Kyle referenced this, like his, uh, you know, one of the things in his editorial was talking about, I actually thought that was something Nino Cooney did really well honestly, or has, is doing really well so far. I mean, like, going and getting the jewel, for example, you know, like, th- I've only gotten two of them, so the third one might suck. But, you know, like, but I mean, the other but the other two have, like, interesting little plots going on, like, with the, uh, you know, how the jewels got there, and things like that. But then again, I find Nino Kuni, Nino Kuni, like, really charming, like, the presentation of its story. I could see where it would turn, you know, turn some people away. Well, I think that Kyle's also hit on another thing real real quick, and that, that's why I wanted Kyle on this show, because, you know, Kyle, you, you've done some writing on the side. I've, I tried to write some short stories, some short fiction when I was in college, and I failed miserably. Like, I realized how complicated it was to, like, get across ideas and narrative without just spelling it out like a history book, without just telling people things. And what I'm really glad to hear Kyle talk about is this connection between gameplay and narrative. I think this is something that we've seen a major disconnect in recent years, especially as the presentation style in video games has continued to improve. I mean, look at the improvement in terms of storytelling between you know, Final Fantasy IV and what we have now with thirteen. Just in look terms at- of conveying a cutscene where before they only had you know a, a little tiny sprite that had to contain all this emotion, and now we can have lightning you know jumping off of walls and doing Matrix stuff. But then the gameplay needs to have a connection with that narrative that you're doing. And I think the best games combine the two and it's really, really hard to pull off sometimes. It is. I I think, I mean, video games are a unique form of art and you don't have to ever, I mean, when you're writing a book, you don't have to contend with gameplay. Um, But it's, it's, and it's very difficult. Like I, I'm not surprised and I don't blame anyone for not integrating the two well, because I, 
I'm often, you know, I don't always have solutions for it. But I think it's about, you know, that basic quest structure. I mean, that really runs everything in games. You know, you might call it a mission or whatever, but it's it's essentially a quest. That quest structure needs to be, we need to be more creative with it. Developers need to be more creative with it. And it needs to be more than just, okay, let's chase this villain around the world. And it's not that I don't think chasing the villain can be compelling if done right, because I actually felt like the story in Final Fantasy VII was compelling, and at the end it really was, well, what's Sephiroth going to do next? Let's get him. But I think that's because I had already established relationships with the characters. But in general, I agree that I think more developers need to be less afraid of not having their game be 30 hours. Like, it's okay if your RPG is 15 hours, if everything I'm doing is incredibly meaningful and engaging. I'd rather play a 15-hour, incredibly compelling RPG than a 45-hour one where 25 of those hours are me running to get somebody's pants. <laughs> and you know what? In the beginning of the game, getting pants, I'm cool with that. Like, you know, the first, the first leg of the journey, if you're setting in motion, you know, Justin has to go get the pot lid to play his shield in, in Grandia. That makes sense in the narrative, so of course I don't mind doing that. And he just wants to go on an adventure at first. That, that starts the narrative. But if I'm in the last leg of the journey and the bad guy is, like, in his tower blowing up the universe, I'd better not be going to find somebody's pots and pans. <laughs> but you're right, Stephen. <laughs> the characters do play a very important role. And I, I would always argue that characters are more important than plot. And that's why. Like, you can have kind of a crappy plot. But if you have characters that are really – they have these really dramatic interactions, then you're golden. Like, Dragon Quest Eight. Dragon Quest VIII, that, that's my example. I, I love those characters in Dragon Quest VIII, but, I mean, the the big bad in the game is basically Stephen King's It. It's a giant clown monster. And that that's yeah. cool. Like, he's got some cool motivation and there's some decent stuff going on, but, like, the interaction between the characters in that game is yeah. what had me that, smiling and laughing. I was loving that's it. that's sometimes where JRPGs can kind of overcome... That's the I would say that's JRPG's strength is character interaction, especially because there's usually a protagonist with a personality. I mean, the Persona games, there's just amazing character interaction. It's it's not hugely dramatic all the time. The plot is pretty dramatic as far as like villains and saving the world kind of stuff goes. But the character interactions are very. I mean, these are high school students and they're dealing with young adult adolescent problems, and it's just there's that quiet drama that's just wonderful. Yeah, you have a character at, questioning his sexuality at one point, but, but which is like, is, whoa, that is you, awesome stuff in video games. But not only is he questioning it, it's not presented as black and white. Like, oh, yeah, he's gay, so that's why he's questioning it. It's he's You, you don't get a, well, he's not gay. Oh, he is gay. You get, he, his, you know, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't he know is. how. It's, <laughs> it's too soon. Well, some people don't think he is, and... No, I mean, I, that, no, <laughs> I don't think he's gay, actually. Um, I was saying that he's not gay. It's, he's not gay. He's not straight. He is. Like, yeah, yeah he, exactly. He, he's not that presented as simple because people aren't simple. Right. That's another huge element. Uh, Kyle, Dave, Dave you, yeah, I was yeah, trying to get Dave in there. Even trying I had to a question for Kyle. Like, I mean, do you think that part of the problem may, might be that most development shops are set up with, like, a separate story you know, story group. Like the writers are in one room over here talking about the plot. And meanwhile, the game designers, the guys who are doing the, you know, the structure of what you're actually going to be doing when you're yeah. pressing buttons, they're in another room, right? 
I mean, one of the things that like Persona was brought up as an interesting point, but part one of the things that's cool about Persona is the character interactions are tied into the gameplay. Like you strengthen those relationships relationships with the characters, and it, it does power up, you know, certain abilities. Amalar yeah, that- had a really interesting thing where you know the fate shifting like actually has a narrative element to it. Now Amalar fell down on certain other narrative aspects, but at least they tried to tie in, you know, the fact that you were getting it, the way you were gaining your abilities was tied into the plot. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, Dave. I, I, I think it could have definitely have something to do with it. If it, you know, there's this disconnect where I'm, I mean, I'm sure they have meetings and they talk about it, obviously, but if they're not the same people, you know, if they're not working side by side, there could be some stuff that falls out between it. Right. I mean, yeah, like, part of the way, the standard way that like games get developed these days is people build an engine first, right? And they worry about a story later. Yeah. And so what you end up doing is you're trying to ratchet these two things together to your point, which is now you got a problem where you're playing the game to get to more of the story and the two things aren't happening, you know, kind of organically. I think the team being split up is a really good thing to bring up in general because you have, you know, to bring in another non-RPG really quick, you have like the Bioshock game. You have to imagine that if the, the scenario writers and the dialogue writers and the gameplay designers weren't together they at least understood very carefully the, all the aspects of the story they were telling because it all does tie in. Kind of like with Mass Effect. With Mass Effect 3, had so many writers that, you know, you had some writers that go, oh, I wrote this part of the story, or I wrote this part of the story, and a, a different guy wrote the final, the final arc of the game, and a lot of people were unhappy. So when, you know, it came out, oh, this writer did that, we're like, well, we hate that writer, but we love this writer. And it's, mm-hmm. I feel like at that point, you know, your writing team should be, in my opinion, I think your writing team should be colluding together. I mean, that shouldn't have been, well, I had nothing to do at the end, so I can't help you. It's like, well, why didn't you? you you're responsible yeah, for would... part of the characterization that has gone on in this game. If they weren't all talking very closely, that would be just a silly thing to do, I think. Well, what's the first thing that's going to get cut from a game when you're running out of budget? Story. Exactly. So... I was going to pose a question to kind of move the topic along a little bit. Um, One thing that I'm noticing right now is that I, when a cutscene is starting, I used to be very engaged when I was a kid, uh, back in the day when, like, cutscenes first became a really, really big thing uh, in video games, thinking about, you know, my, my good old series that I always go to, Metal Gear. And I was, I was always, I I loved cutscenes. I loved them. Everybody drink. Uh, (laughs) thank you dave i got my i got my got my scotch right here uh yep and uh but now i'm playing uh steven was kind enough to buy me a copy of uh devil may cry dmc and i'm playing it and i gotta be honest that every time a cutscene starts i have this desire to just walk away and i'm like okay you tell me when it's time to start playing the game because i've I've gotten into this point where I've been playing so many games like like Bioshock and Dishonored that are giving me the narrative and then my other get ready to take another drink guys uh Dark Souls which are doing environmental storyline or telling me story while I'm playing the game not doing the fade to black loading screen fade in now we have a cutscene that I have no interaction with I'm just getting story well, this and I get it, like that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I'm finding myself very turned off to that in any video game anymore. I just don't. We just got a huge. This goes. Go, this go goes, ahead, Kyle. Go ahead. Go this ahead. goes right back to gameplay story integration. 
And, you know, Irrational Games is always, in Ken Levine, they're huge on not cutting out the action, which I think is a great decision. Um, I mean, I like some cutscenes. De- you know, it depends. It's different. It's tastes. It's different games. You know, people prefer different things. And I don't want them to all to be the same. But it's that integration. It's do you want there to be cutscenes or do you want there to be like an uh, interactive cutscene, for example? Yeah, I- I'm just. We just got that huge long uh, Metal Gear Solid Five trailer, and I I said to Steven, because I I called him up because we were gushing about Bioshock, and I said, I don't care. Like, I'm, I'm so done with Kojima's style of storytelling. Like, and I'm not saying that it's bad. I'm saying me having played other games where the story is being told to me as I'm playing the game. Like, I, I, I look up at something in Dark Souls, and I see the castle just completely wrecked and a dragon on top of it. And in any other game, that would be a cutscene. In any other game, that would be a cutscene. And there are there are little cutscenes in Dark Souls, but for the most part you're learning about the story and interacting with the characters and talking to them rather than fade out, fade in, cutscene, and then fade back out, fade in, gameplay. Like, I, I'm just tired of it right now, guys. And I, I, I'm not saying that, like, no game should have cutscenes anymore, but, like, is this the only way to convey story or should the medium be trying to move forward and trying new ways to give me story? Like I, one of my big hangups with Nino Cooney was every time the wall of text would come up. And it, again, it was TLDR. I'm just like, well, that's not interactive. I'm not interacting with this except pressing the X button. Okay. So I think a lot of, See, sorry, I, go ahead. I say, I think that really is a taste thing though, because I, on the other hand, liked every cutscene of Devil May Cry. I said, all right, I've been fighting for a while. I'm going to stop. I don't want to watch this cutscene. And even in a JRPG, you know, I, I have never been a big fan of Nino Kuni since I first tried it at TGS. So, it, you know, it's not for me. But on the other hand, I don't feel like there's anything inherently wrong with a cutscene. It's just if that's not what you want, then it's obviously not going to satisfy you. But for me, I don't mind. Like, I love the new Metal Gear trailer. And I, you know, people like to hate on Metal Gear 4 now. I think it was a fantastic game. Yes, the story was ham-fisted, but it's always been ham-fisted. And... I, I, I was engaged with the characters, and I enjoyed watching the cutscenes. Do I want that in every game? No, I don't want to sit and watch two-hour cutscene in every game. But if I sit down knowing full well that I'm about to play Xenosaga, I'm not going to get on the internet and complain that I had to watch an hour-long <laughs> cutscene. I know I'm going to have to watch an hour-long cutscene. It's Xenosaga. That's but true. No, that's on true. the other hand, I've seen people complain. You look at a lot of Nintendo's games lately. Look at Paper Mario. Look at Luigi's Mansion. Nintendo used to be very much about environmental – well, not e- not really even environmental, but just – very sparse storytelling, but now they're really getting towards the, you know, people like the writing. It's sharp, but there's, I would argue, there's a lot of writing in Nintendo that's, games that's superfluous, and there's too much of it. What Whatever happened to Super Metroid? Super Metroid, like, the first 20 minutes of that game was, like, the most terrifying, like, oh my like, what god. what is going on? Yeah, you walk into a room, there are dead people, the Metroid is gone, and then you walk into another room, it's, oh, there's the Metroid. Ah! It's a giant space dragon! And it was like, that's all they needed to do, and then you play Skyward Sword, and it's like... Okay, Link, you woke up today. Hey, this is a really cool day. Yeah, you remember how this is the big day at the ferry? Yeah, you got to go over and you got to go get your piece of cloth. I could go for 20 minutes, guys. You got to go over and get your piece of cloth. Okay, now go up to the highest building and all. Isn't it a really cool vision? (laughs) Okay, now jump off the building. (laughs) Like, Like, I get it, guys. But, like, there's something to be said for urgency. And, yes, I do like to be told a good tale. But I also find it to be, like, the most boring way to convey a, sport, a story to me anymore. 
I think it depends it, on the story and the type of game. It does depend on the story, I think. But I, I like to see new forms of storytelling, you know, especially that are specific to the medium. But I'll, I'll still enjoy cutscenes. It definitely comes down to taste. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to get. That that's what I was going to get at, Kyle. Was your point about this medium? It's basically telling stories. A lot of times, they're telling stories the way other mediums already do it, right? And in that case, then gameplay just gets in the way of the story. Whereas if you can find interesting ways to kind of integrate the two, now you're doing something unique. Right. Yep. That that's something I've always felt very strongly about. Whenever people, whenever the art in video games argument comes up, I want to run screaming from the hills because what I hear people always bring up is, oh well, the story's really good, or the, or the voice acting, or it's beautiful, and I'm like, no, 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 no. Video games need to do something different. Well, I think that mainstream video games, then, if that's what we're looking for, are going to have a really tough time doing that. Yeah. I mean, and the reason is because budget considerations are just simply, you know, they're they're too massive. You know, I mean, like, video games, too, are, like, not in a good place, like, financially, especially with the new console coming out and everything like that. I mean, you know, what, last quarter, I think video games were down in February 25%, like, in yep. total physical sales, like, in the yep. U.S. I mean, so, I mean, like, it's not, like, I mean, you just can't afford to take risks when you're a AAA Shot. But, I, but I so don't, you're going to get this. So you're going to get this stuff. I, I don't even think you have to take huge risks. So I'm remembering a part in uh, at the end of Shadow of the Colossus at the, at the penultimate part in that game. They do this really cool thing where they bring together story and narrative where you're you're being uh, you're being oh, yeah. you're being sealed away because you've been corrupted. And you're trying to want, run away from this vortex and you can't get away from it. And I remember I thought that was so bold for them to make this part in the game that I can control, but it has a definite outcome. And I, That's feel, like, actually... I feel like any other game would have just been like, okay, here's a cutscene of you being sealed away. But by making me the player, by making me a part of that scene, you made it so much more personal. And I'm not saying that you can do that with every scene, but that's why that scene has stuck with me, what, how many years after that game came out? That's actually exactly the same reason I think Crisis Core is such an incredible story. Because, first of all, they take a character from Seven that I don't think anybody really cared about. I mean, Zack was just the guy that Cloud copied, whatever. He dated Eris. But thanks for the, you have the entire... <laughs> you have, Eris dies, by the way. Sorry. Oh! You have, you have the whole of Crisis Core to like Zack. And the whole time, it does something that the Harry Potter novels do when I read them or when I watch... The movies, I always go, when it gets to the time when a character is going to die, I'm, I'm always, I love the character so much that it's making me go, I wish the outcome was different here. And Crisis Core, you know what's going to happen the entire game. You know Zack is going to die because that's the only way, place it can go. And in the, very, in the finale, it does the same thing that Shadow of the Colossus does where you're in control of a battle and you can fight for as long as you want. But inevitably, you're going to die. You have it, the, it's impossible the, to win. The end of Red Dead Redemption. Holy crap! That yeah, moment was just like whoa. And that was again. But it's not an RPG. I know, but just <laughs> but I, I think that the, I think we're saying something about RPGs right now when we no, say think, this sort of thing. I think what you guys are talking about is creativity. I mean, you want something new. You want something creative. You want real creativity, which isn't just regurgitating something done before or you know i mean there's so many times i'll pick up a book and start reading it and after the end of the first chapter i just throw it up against the wall because it's like i i've read this book 500 times before 
I, I've played favorite. this game 500 times before. You know, you want something, you want to experience something new. And I think a big part of that is, you know, because gameplay you can only change so much, but stories and settings and characters you could really be creative with. Yeah. Well, I that's think, though, that right, RPGs are going to be uniquely challenged for that because mm-hmm. if, if, if we're already calling things, you know, you put a couple extra new gameplay elements on it, and when does it stop being an RPG anymore? That's true. That's true. The more you make it an action game, the more... I mean, RPGs have always been... There has been a, a strict line between the gameplay and the narrative. And now as they've tried, as action games have brought in RPG elements, and as RPGs, like, think about the original Mass Effect and Mass Effect 2, that change in the way that the action is played out and how the RPG elements are a part of the experience, that does kind of start to create a disconnect. So then maybe you can't have these experiences that are so intrinsically creative. Think about how many people don't think Mass Effect 2 and 3 are actually RPGs. Think I about first, that for a second. Well, hey, I'm, a, I'm in that category. I don't think they're RPGs. I think they're act- they're uncharted with but an upgrade system. That's, that just makes the point, though, right? Yeah. I mean, like, if you're going to have if you're gonna have something new and creative, well, like, RPGs are going to have a real hard time doing that. I think that they can do interesting things within their battle systems. I mean, bringing up Nino Kuni again, it did a great job, I think, of kind of adding some new elements while being true to the the traditional elements, but the storyline is still going to be told in a stilted way. Yep. Yep. Now see, I, now while we're on the topic of creative methods of storytelling, I, I had another game, I have another game I'm going to talk about, but I wanted to mention this one in terms of creative storytelling. You have a game like lost odyssey. Lost odyssey has your standard bad guy wants to take over the world plot. Well, it doesn't, but it's, you know, it's told via standard tropes and your standard progression through a Japanese RPG. But, you know, you have, with the Thousand Years of Dreams, I bring this up all the time, you know, that's something that's, I don't think that's ever been done in a game in that method before, where you can learn exactly as much about the character as you want to. You can skip all the dialogue if you want, or all of the, the, the Thousand Years of Dreams, but by skipping them, you're not understanding Kaim as a character, because he'll react to certain events in the plot a certain way. And you could say, you, you know, you'll be like Rob when he doesn't know why a character is reacting that way. Or he's like, I wouldn't react that way. And by not reading the sto- short stories, you don't know why Kaim reacts that way. And they're so poignant. And it's, it's not something I think every game, game can or should do because it, it is a very, very particular pace because you're, you know, you're progressing through your story and then all of a sudden, boom, Kaim, a memory has been unlocked. And it's like, well, am I going to sit here and read a short story for 15 minutes? Well, I... I- I loved it. I could see people not liking it. I loved but it. God, I couldn't get I, enough of that game, at, but it's not the, for everyone. At the risk of uh, starting up a chorus of Will the Circle Be Unbroken, that kind of brings us back to my main point, which was the the way that they conveyed the narrative in Lost Odyssey was the wall of text. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. If you want to read that, that's cool. If I don't, that's great. But it was just a wall of text. Like, it can't video games present the narrative in a better way? It was the only way to do that, a cutscene otherwise. So instead they decided, hey, let's write a lot of different stories that we can get in here and, and not go over budget with doing massive cutscenes because that but would I, also piss Rob off. Well, again, I, don't, I don't feel like that was their goal. They, were, they didn't say, oh, well, our only other option is a cutscene. That's how we're going to do this. They said we want to write – they had a novelist write these stories. Jay Rubin, he's a noted scholar of Japanese literature and a translator. He he translated them into English. This is this was not a we're trying to stay in budget. This was when they designed the game. They said 
this man has been alive for over a thousand years. We want to tell, you know, it's an anthology of kime tales. I mean, I, I just actually am really excited. I just bought the book in Japanese of all the collected short stories because Kaim as a character in the game is your standard aloof JRPG protagonist. But by reading those short stories, that's it's it's there's I, I don't think there is any other way for them to do that because that was what they meant to do with it. But again, it's not for everybody. I, I, w- I would agree. You know, it's not like no, I, 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 mean, I don't think Rob would it, like it at all. I mean, it just goes back to like. It, it, it's not just – it's taste, but again, this really good game, I wouldn't want every other game to be like that. I wouldn't want any other game maybe to be – to have short stories in it. But it works for Lost Odyssey, and that's one of the best things about the game, yep. and that's fantastic. And, and I don't also, want every game to be like you know a graphic adventure like The Walking Dead. That's a really cool story. There's some fantastic drama in there, but I don't want everyone – I don't want every game to have that little – amount of gameplay in it you know it just i so sorry go ahead Rob. i was gonna say i agree and i think it also comes down to how well written is that wall of text i you know i'm Amazingly. not i'm not really a pro i'm not making a criticism but i'm not really a prose guy like i'm i'm, I'm very i'm very much a dialogue focused guy when i'm reading a book and I, I don't pay attention really to prose except when it's william gibson and he's literally cracking my head open with his descriptions but if it's not interesting to read if it's just and i'm not saying that lost odyssey isn't but like but you're yeah just in general yeah but like when i'm reading one of those books in skyrim i'm like this is so damn dry, dry. Yeah. like it's, a, it's interesting a history book uh, the interesting thing is that we often think of writing you know, prose as something that's very objectively good or bad. Oh, no, sort of it, like math. Exactly. There's <laughs> just rules. And, you know, we, we lump them together. Reading, writing, and arithmetic. Well, it's actually very subjective what is good prose. Yeah. You, I mean, if you, if, you know, you take a book and you say, read this page and you ask, you know, 10 different people, they'll have very different ideas, which I, I just recently kind of realized this. And it's very interesting. Um, you might think that, like, okay, this is good prose. Like, everyone's going to agree. Definitely not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. Well, now, actually, I was going to suggest we take it in a different direction, um, if everyone's all right with that. Yeah. No. Well, something I think is really important, and this this has come up on our forums, and it's something that I've always felt really strongly about. It's why I like the Tales games. It's why Final Fantasy IX is my favorite Final Fantasy. It's why I love the Shadow Hearts series. And it's because I feel like there's sometimes this belief that the darkness of a plot or how, how you know, the, that the dramatic weight and ha- the indications of having a deeper meaning are tied into how complex the plot is, like Xenogears, or how dark it is, like Persona 3 versus Persona 4. I feel like, for me, the most important thing is the characterization, and I think humor is an incredible tool that can be used really well. Tales characters are tropes. All of them are tropes. Every single Tales character is a trope, yet I love Tales of the Abyss because you have so much banter between the characters that they establish these relationships, and then you see them at the best of times. You see them when they're happy and having fun and making fun of each other and talking about cat paws and boobs and all kinds of ridiculousness. So when the drama steps up, you go, I understand why these characters are affected by this drama and how it's going to impact who they are as a character, and that's why I love Shadowhearts. Because all three of those games have a very different style of telling a story that is tinged with darkness, but also with humor. I, I agree with you, and I think we don't really 
we can all agree. All right, let me let me try to back up here and say it a little bit differently. But if you all think about a Bioware RPG right now, think about your favorite character in that Bioware RPG. The character that's usually mentioned is yeah. the com- is the comedic character. Is like the shale or the uh, HK whatever from uh, HK forty seven from uh, Knights of the Old Republic or shale from Dragon Age. Minsk. Those or what? Minsk. Minsk. The, Absolutely Minsk. These are, these are the characters that stand out because uh, I, I don't want to get us back into the grim, dark argument that the, we were having on our editorial boards at one point. But like having that levity and having moments where like Ga- Garrus is, you know, making fun of somebody in your party in Mass Effect, these are important character moments. And you, you don't just need conflict to establish characters. You need humor and you need these buddy buddy moments. You need to have a reason why these people are together and working together. And it does it can't always be misunderstandings. It has to be different things. And I think that I agree with Steven. Humor is a hugely important part of this. I think the I think, reason you sorry, I think the reason you see more of the you know, the grimdark, like you said, is because you'll look at your bestseller list right now, you look at the top movies and <laughs> you know, look, grim grim stuff is selling right now. All right. And you know, this is a business. Video games are a business. And when you're throwing this type of money at something where you're in an industry right now where you're you're talking about a hundred million dollars for a game, and you know, last quarter people are spending you know seven hundred million. That's not a lot to go around. That means seven games are going to break even. That's not good. So what you want to do then is try to tap into everything to make it appeal to as many people as possible. And you look at those top movies, you look at those top books. It's got to be a little grim. Look at the Tomb Raider reboot for crying out loud. I mean. No, this, is the, I, this is the direction it's going. They just wanted it, this. Just adds sales. No, I agree with you completely there. But that's why I think it's so important to understand the pacing between the darkness of your plot and moments of levity. Like that's why I brought up Shadowhearts. Shadowhearts has a really, really dark, sad plot. Shadow, I mean, Shadowhearts Two is one of the most tragic stories I've ever played in the game, and it's incredibly moving. But it's not overly sentimental. It's just because you've seen Yuri as a character at his worst moments you've seen him when he's having a great time with alice and screwing around and being a pervert and getting yelled at for being a jackass and all of these moments when he's crushed by something it it affects you more because you're like i understand why he's so crushed by this because i didn't just see him in panic mode like the bad guy's destroying the world we all have to go and take out the bad guy you saw him when it was just (laughs) alice is pretty hot i want to hit that you know so as a character you're like yeah he's relatable like you understand that, that, I guess that's what I take into it overall is the relatability of your characters. I love Zidane because he's relatable. His, when he finally has his breakdown at the end of the game, he's been relatable up to that point. You understand him as a person, so you know why he's having that breakdown, and that's why it's believable. With Yuri, there's a scene late in Shadow Hearts 2 that's just basically he's, he tries to get in touch with a certain character, and he can't, and he just completely breaks down. And it's this heart-wrenching scene because... This guy is so aloof and gruff and just kind of a, you know, kind of a rough and tumble kind of guy that you see him crying and you're like, what? It, it, it strikes you because you've seen, you know, I'm, I'm repeating myself here, but, you know, it's why I like the, dark, uh, the Avengers better than The Dark Knight Rises. The Avengers has humor to make me care about the characters. The Dark Knight Rises, I like it, but it's very, very, very serious and the pacing is exhausting. 
That's why with Final Fantasy XIII, I don't like the plot because I don't think it's relatable because it's exhausting drama, 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 drama. It's never like Snow nudging Lightning on the shoulder and being like, hey, your sister? Yeah. Yeah, but there, but I do love it whenever Lightning punches Snow right in the face. Like all it. 50 times? Yep. <laughs> so um, I, I don't mean to cut us off, but we, we kind of have been going for, for a while here. So like maybe just... I don't think we're going to sum everything up in a grand thesis here, but let's just all just to kind of move us forward and get us into the news cycle. Let's all talk about like, what's the big thing that we look for in narrative real quick. Let's just give everybody a chance to put out. What's the big thing they look for. What's the hook for them. And I want to start with Derek because I feel like he's been real quiet tonight. He's probably been enjoying his wine and I want to get him in here. I'm absolutely enjoying my wine. Thank you for asking. Good, good. Um, what I look for in games is always is exactly what you've been talking about, strong characterization. Um, an example that I know a lot of people haven't played it because it really is, you know, it's pretty niche and it's, I mean, it sounds so pretentious when I said that. It's so niche. You probably haven't heard of it. It's you called, heard it's it. called Heavy ha- Rain. It, it's, full heard of, it. it's called Heavy Rain. It's full of emotion. And uh... come back when I'm done waxing my longboard. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, you know, Bioshock um, Infinite isn't that good. God. Like, <laughs> in reality, so anyway, it's just a shooter. Legend of the Legend of Heroes: Trails in the Sky. I've mentioned it many times before because it's a game that has a really basic plot. At least in the first game, it has a really basic plot. Um, still biting at the bit to to get into the rest of that series if we ever get to see it in English. Um, but it's it's the kind of game that's like. It's a lot like a Tales game in that it's incredibly driven by character interactions. And that's what I look for in a game because, yeah, you can have the basic save the world plot. And I think that there's still a lot, you know, there's room for more creativity in writing and writing and story presentation. A lot of stories are just like the same basic story with a new twist. Um, but games like Trails in the Sky or Persona 4 that really build up those characters and the world, character and world building are really important to me. Uh, because if you can have a basic story, but if you have a couple of characters that interact with each other in, in unique ways that make them believable and make you root for them in their moments of weakness or when they're facing adversity, that's what I look for. And that's what makes a game compelling to me. No, I agree completely. That's why I love Persona 4. It's There are so many little... You have your S-Link cutscenes. You have like the beach trip. You have all this stuff that just establishes the characters as friends. and, and You see them... When they're not in panic mode, when they're normal, this is how life is for these people. So when that life is threatened and upset, you you can answer that question: Why this day? Why am I why am I experiencing this plot? And a lot of people would argue that those kind of scenes are superfluous. That like you know, well I get yeah whatever they're going to the beach, but I have to I want to get through with the story. It's like no, that's that's an that really is the story. Important part they're absolutely making, necessary. Yeah, of making you care about the characters and understanding why they feel the way they do when they're faced with conflict. Yeah, like that's why there's a an event that happens late in the game that if the game didn't do such a good job characterizing everyone's relationships, it would have no impact. Because in a regular JRPG, they would have been, well, not a regular, but in many other RPGs, they would just say, oh, this character's been in the game the whole time. You're sad that this person, you know, is in trouble. But in Persona 4, when someone's in trouble, you understand that person on so many levels that you're like, oh my god, I don't want bad things to happen to this person. Yeah, it, it's because the game the game makes you care rather than just presenting it as this is a key character and you and should you care. care. Exactly. Right. I'd be interested it, to know. They show, don't tell. 
I'd be interested to know, I mean, Rob's looking to sum it up. Is there anybody on this podcast who doesn't think that for RPG video games in particular, character characters development isn't the most important thing for the story? Like, I know that there are other elements that are important and nice to have, and that will jar, you know, like, but if you're going to spend 30, 40 hours like you're expected to in an RPG, is there anybody who doesn't think that the character building is the most important thing? I, think, I don't. You know, I, I really think that... Uh, you know, it was summed up well. I, I think it's the most important aspect, without a doubt. I, I gotta... I, I'm trying to... Mm, 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 mm. See, because I know what I look for most in my video games. Um, and I think... I, I know I'm know. i not talking about video games in general. I know, but... I'm RP- talking about just RPGs. But but now here's... So not Bioshock. But, that, but now... But that's the problem, guys, is that up until this past week, I probably would have agreed with you. But playing Infinite, which is not an RPG, which is not an RPG, but I I'm really realizing now that I'm I'm looking for world building. Well, I'm lo- wait wait wait. Let me get this out there. Let me get this out there. I'm looking for consistency with the world, and I'm looking for meaning with the world, and I want it to feel like. Uh, again, I'm an immersion guy. I'm all about being. I want to be lost in the video game that I'm playing. And when I play a game like I think about uh, Final Fantasy Thirteen for a second, that world does not make sense to me. Like I, I'm just sitting there. I'm like Spoonie. I'm just going, why does it have to be like this? Why does the elevator key have to turn like this? Why does she suddenly have telekinetic abilities one minute and then the next minute she doesn't? Why is she I able to explain that? But but like I keep going and going and it's like at some point the illusion of the world has been so completely broken that the characters coming together isn't enough for me anymore. It's like it's just drivel at that point. Well, and even would, strong characterization can't bring me back. I would argue that Bioshock Infinite, I don't know how long it took you to get through that. You know what? It took you like three days, right? Yeah, twelve hours. So it you're going to twelve hours. You're going to bring up that. twelve hours versus sixty hours. I get well, where you're going. exactly. Go, 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 exactly. Go. My point is simply that I don't think you can compare those those two. I mean, there are a lot of really excellent independent games that take you know maybe thirty minutes to play that tell stories in unique ways, like ways that we've talked about on this podcast that we're interested in seeing. <laughs> I, my question is simply that I don't know that RPGs are really going to ever be conducive to that because what at what point do they cease to be an RPG? That's and if you're expected, and if you're expected to spend 30, 40 hours going through an RPG playing with the same character, it has to be characters, right? It, it it just seems like it'd be so hard to do it any other way. I I actually agree, and I think, and this isn't to to make a value judgment. I think Rob is just looking for something different in his game. He wants to learn about a world. That's why I think you like like Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones isn't about the characters; it's about the world and oh, the characters I, uh, operating dude, dude, in it. Dude, I literally couldn't disagree with you more on that one. Yeah, Stephen, I had to disagree. Too. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, uh, I, I, I was going to say that I think most of the characters in that book are tropes, but it's, oh. we, can, we, we can agree to disagree there. But I think where we can agree is that Rob, you're not looking, you're not looking first at a character. If in, R, in an RPG, I think Dave has it on. If you're going to be in there for 60 hours, there's no possible way you can sustain dramatic tension for 60 hours. At some point, it's going to break up. No, so I'll... by having you engaged by the characters, you like that. But with a game like Bioshock, you can get in there, you yeah, can tell a story about experience. Right, it's capable yeah. of doing something different, capable of delivering something that you're looking for. In that respect, then I agree with the statement that we're going for here, that characterization is the most important part. But I will say that when I was playing Dragon Age... I wasn't just interested in the characters. I was interested in the world because 
in that game, I felt like the world was also giving the conflict to the characters. Learning about the Kunari was the reason why What's-His-Face was being such a jerk. Learning about Orle was why What's-Her-Face, Liana, was being so, um, so like, what you call it, like, so ethereal and so, like, behind the scenes. That kind of stuff, I think the combination of the two can create a far more immersive and better experience. So I'm not just looking for characterization, but I agree with you guys. That's probably the most important part. But a proper world and world creation can then also help out with the character development. Well, no. I just want to say that for Rob, not and it, this isn't just you, but it's a thing that that a lot of people I think are experiencing. Bring it now. on, Derek. Well, it's it's the inability to suspend disbelief when you're presented with like a a series that that for like for whatever reason it doesn't appeal to you, like Final Fantasy thirteen. I, I know that we're we'll never see eye to eye in it, but and we respect each other, and that's fine. I don't respect you. Uh, no, I get it. I, screw you. <laughs> I've had a glass of wine. All right. No, I, uh, I I've, mm-hmm. I've had more than one glass. Um, <laughs> But with Final Fantasy Thirteen, like, the world is kind of goofy, but if you just read... It, I, I'm not saying that you should have to, but if you choose to, you can read the data logs and understand why things operate the way that they do, for the most part. So for you and some other people, it may just be, be like, you see that and you're like, I don't have the time or the patience or the... I don't want to say not the imagination, but, like, it just doesn't... Like, it's too out there for you to want to, like, put your to really put yourself in there if if that makes sense. No, that's a, I, fair, I, that's a very fair. That's why I make the distinction between convincing and realistic. Yeah, yes. and I, I think the presentation is important too because I I find Final Fantasy 13's world to be something that is interesting, but I feel like it's not well presented. You don't get a very good slice of that world. You get here's a bunch of crap. All right, go and run through like you run through so little of that world that I think the way it's presented is difficult for me to say I'm engaged in this world because I've basically just run through such a small portion of it that I don't have a great idea of it. I think it looks really cool, and I love the idea of the world, but I just feel like it's a presentation thing. Okay, that's fair. The Can world I... got hamstrung by the gameplay. <laughs> there you go. No, I'd agree. With, I, I actually agree, liked the gameplay. You. I liked the gameplay in Final Fantasy thirteen. I loved it. But I think I, that I there, it's a classic example of the you know the presentation of the world getting hamstrung by the necessity of gameplay. Yeah. yeah. Well, I actually liked the battle system too. No, I, I liked thirteen. I just didn't love it. Like I felt like the combat and all that was good. It's just. Well, I, yeah. Well, we talked about this. So so we're finally here. What Kyle has to say. He oh, Kyle didn't sorry, really get Kyle, to put in a closing point. Sorry, Kyle. Get in there. Sorry, right. you can forget me anytime. Um, okay. All right, bye, Kyle. Bye, bye. Kyle. All right, see you. Go, Kyle. No, go ahead. Okay, get back in there. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> I have no idea what I was going to say now. Thank you. Okay, moving on to nurse. Uh, nurse. Nurse. No, I, I, I think I, I look for. We're talking about what we look for, mainly, and I mean. For me, it just it varies from thing to thing. Like sometimes it's relatability. If there's that character that I can relate to, then that will win me over for that thing. Sometimes it's the world. Um, that that would be you know Dark Souls, for example. Sometimes it's the characters. That's Persona. Sometimes it's the plot. Um, I can't think of an example because that's pretty rare. But you know, I think it. Sometimes it's 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 unpredictability like 
an Acronox has one of the most unpredictable plots ever, and I think that's one of the brilliant things about it because so many things are predictable. So it's really – I just want to be moved intellectually, mentally, or uh, emotionally, or spiritually. I want to be moved. So if we're talking – if we want to sum all this up, the gist of it is we don't want everything to be the same. Every situation is different. What we want is different every time. We just want it to be executed well, whether it's characters, world building, immersion in the world, being surprised, being unsurprised. It's yeah, a complex, it's a complex mean, issue. It's, it yeah, is. It's, it's we could talk about it for say, 13 hours. hours. Yeah, so that should be easy to do. Get on it, developers. Yeah, come on, guys. I yeah, want, I want that we... perfect storytelling. Which brings us right back to Kyle's editorial. We don't always know what we want until we want it. Or until we, yeah, I, I botched that. Okay, so uh, are we ready to talk about news? Because I got a bone to pick. When don't you have a bone to pick? I know, right? In what, what you... world? In what world is 3.6 million units of Tomb Raider just boxed units, not counting digital sales? In what world? In a first month of sales, is that considered bad? And Square Enix is allowed to say, "Oh yeah." Man, Hitman and Tomb Raider really messed up our numbers. Are you kidding me? What the... Eidos should just leave. Uh, man, if they could, they should just leave. Like, Eidos is the only thing holding those boys up right now with their $15 iOS version of Final Fantasy XV... I almost said Final Fantasy XV. Too much scotch. With their $15 version of Final Fantasy V. Are you kidding me, Square Enix? $15.99. Well... I, I, I feel the same what way. I, the hell? I feel like this is the same thing that brought down 3.8 Studios. Or, uh, something in the business side was mismanaged, misunderstood. I don't know what it was. But if, you, if your overhead is so high that you're considering 3.4 million copies of a reboot of a series that isn't that popular these days to be a failure. I mean, heck, Sleeping Dogs, one, what was it, like 1.5? That's yeah. not a failure. As, as so a, it, considered it, to be brand new IP? Exactly. That's a massive success. So if your overhead or your planning, if some, if if you have conducted your business in such a way where you spent so much money on the game or on marketing or on something that that is not a success, there is something wrong with the way you are running your business. Period. No oh. matter how good your games are, has nothing to do with whether or not they're producing JRPGs, producing Western RPGs. If they're focusing too much on ports, nothing to do with that. It's a flat-out business problem. What are they promising their investors? Well, guys, uh, y- you see, we're expecting 20 million units of Tomb Raider to sell. Yep, that's right, yeah, 20 million units. I like, have no idea. Like, and, and before anybody goes goes onto the message board and they're like, well, you know, if they just ported Bravely Default over, that would fix all their woes. No, it won't! That game is not going to sell 10 million units! How much in the hole were they? Like, how much are we talking about here? Like, they, their, their loss... For this quarter, like this is why WADA had to step down. Their business structure is beyond screwed up. Like I just don't even get it anymore. Like, and Idos, it, it, this is why I feel terrible, is because Idos is holding up their end of the bargain. They're producing games like Deus Ex and Hitman and Tomb Raider and now Thief. Like, if Square Enix ends up going under. As a result of this, and and they lose Eidos and all the creativity that they're going through to bring these games out, I'm going to be pissed. In other news, Rob is pissed. In other Are news, Rob needs to not drink when he's podcasting. All right, Headline, let's move on to Rob another news story. Angry. 
Does anybody yeah. else have anything to add to that? Like, am, am I off base here in thinking that Square Enix's business practices are for S? I like, don't think that their business practices are that different from most of the AAA shops right now. You can only hit home runs. If you hit it, it, singles, will bury you. Basically, I mean no. that's just the model. That's just the model we're in right now. So and you know, everybody has to be Activision. Everybody has to sell nine million copies. I think if you're Square Enix, you have to be. It's oh either that. It's God. either that. It's either that, or you're making League of Legends, or you know, World of Tanks, or something like that. And believe this, it or not, those games are more profitable. This like industry, in this, case. this this not to cut you off, Stephen, but like this, this industry is in serious trouble. If I don't that's think the mindset, I don't think right the now. industry is in any trouble. I think that what you're going to, I think that the triple A franchise houses are in big trouble. I think they're in huge that's trouble. Right. I think Sony is in massive trouble with the PlayStation Four. Really? Right? For example, yeah, I, I absolutely do. I okay, think that the days, I, I want to hear this. Okay, I think, go. I think that I think that Sony's got Sony right now, hardware sales wise, has lost billions of dollars in the last few years. That's just not even up for debate. That's just fact that they have to release over and over and over again when they do their earnings. Mm-hmm. They can't sell hardware anymore. All right, this is their last big gasp at a console that can actually you know do something. But the problem is that all the games now are moving like the independent games and the small distributor, the smaller distributor games are the ones that have the biggest profit margin now. Yeah. And the yeah. reason they have the biggest profit margin is because they're able to take risks. Now, if those games don't do well, then, you know, that guy doesn't eat and goes back to his job doing something else. If, you know, if an EA game doesn't do well or like a square game doesn't do well, it torpedoes the franchise and they have to basically go they basically have to make a hope that the next game does it. No, I, I agree with you, Dave. And I think actually I think that's why Sony is busting busting their ass right now to court indie developers. Like with the Vita and uh, what is it called? Uh, getting Unity on Vita. Yeah. And all yeah. that sort of thing. I think that is a smart, smart choice because the Vita right now Almost all the upcoming games are small indie games. The I question mean, I have, though, the question I have is not, like, I think Sony is doing all the right things as far as trying to get that stuff on there. The question I have is who's going to buy a PlayStation 4 if it comes in anywhere more expensive than 199 bucks? I'm serious. No, I, wow. I, I think you're right. Because, I think you're because, right. Because you're talking about everybody's got, like, a, everybody's got a, a tablet, everybody's got a mobile phone, and they can play these games for 2 or $3, and these games all have much higher profit margins. Oh. Who is going to be the install base? I, I you know, I, I got to disagree with you a little bit there, Dave, because I still think that you got your Call of Duty and Madden. You got those guys who, who play Call of Duty, play Madden. They only buy a couple of games a year. And those guys are going to shift when they hear that Call of Duty, whatever, Ghosts, whatever apparently the new version is, when they hear that that's going to be on next-gen consoles, I think they are going to shell it. And I also disagree with you a little bit. If you have people that are laying down $800 on an iPad, and I I guess your argument to me is right now that they wouldn't spend more than $200 on a console, I think we've actually been hardwired now to spend more. I don't As think a result so. of things like I iPads, think that, I think that when you look at, I think that when you look at the the industry, no doubt about it, is looking at the sales of things like the mobile platform and looking at sales of things like the tablet platform, and they're getting crushed. And what EA EA themselves is in a transitional period where they're going to have to look, they're going to get in a new CEO, and they're going to be very focused on things like subscription-based models, you know, with some of their biggest franchises, like, you know, like uh, uh, Call of Duty and uh, 
you know, uh, the Madden series and things like that. What they're going to try to do, what they're looking at, very, very taking a very hard look at, is can we sell yearly subscriptions to these games and make more money that way? And then you just have a permanent like digital install, things like that. I think that when you also look at the fact that you know Sony sold. Uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me right here, unfortunately. I should have pulled them up in advance of this conversation. But right now, last quarter, $800 million in total was spent on physical hardware and software. Twice that was spent on digital stuff, and just on digital, just on pure digital, pure digital downloads and things like that. Sony doesn't have the ability to be able to put a piece of hardware in there that in front of you that can do all that. I don't think they can do everything they're promising they're going to be able to do for less than 400 bucks. And if it's 400 bucks, nobody's buying it. That's what I think is going to happen. Now we're going to find out. I think 400 bucks is the magic number, personally. I think that's the number that's just enough for people to go, all right, I think I'm going to do this. I think anything above 400 bucks starts to get into a danger zone, but... You know, we we were hardwired for that with the uh, 360. Well, with I want to be real clear launch. about. I want to be real clear about something too. The PlayStation 3 lost money. All right, I'm not talking about just the game sales and everything like that. The PlayStation 3 hasn't turned a profit yet in its in its life cycle. And are you? And now all of a sudden we're suggesting that you know the PlayStation 4. This is the one that's going to fix it for 400 bucks. There is no way. I, I don't see it happening. I think PlayStation 4 might be the beginning of the. Might be the beginning of the end of the high-end console, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Electronics is getting cheaper and cheaper, but we will definitely find out. I think it's going to be really interesting. My perspective has changed a lot, especially since I built a PC. Because now I look at my consoles and I go, for me, there is no functional difference between my Xbox 360 and my PS3. I don't care what graphics either of them can put out. What matters to me only is that console exclusive games. There's nothing on the 360 that I want to play. So I just as soon sell it. I keep my PS3 because there's like four games a year that I can only play on now, PS3. That does go to Rob's point about the exclusivity, and I think that's always where Sony can differentiate themselves, is if they can get enough exclusive titles to make it attractive, then they still have something. And I think that was a point that Rob was making. Yeah, well, I, 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 I agree, because I, I think when you look at 400, 400 plus dollars at that point, you can build a PC that can run games that look as good as a PlayStation three for $400 period. You know, it may not run them perfectly, but neither can the PS three. I think the exclusives is huge though, because that's what always gets me to buy a console. I don't care about the other features or any other, you know, I don't have any brand loyalty. It's, there's always like that one game. It'll be mass effect. For example, with the Xbox 360, it was okay. I need one of these. And it's always an exclusive that does it. Think about these numbers. All right, I just pulled something up real quick. Uh, the NDP numbers in 2010, and I'm sure they're even more grim for Sony now. All right, the install base for the Nintendo DS was a close to 50 million units at the end of 2010. The Nintendo Wii around 35 million. Xbox 360, you're all the way down to 25. When you get to the PS3, you're at 15 million. 15 million. Now, which you tell me which console you're going to develop for, and then you bring in the cell phone market on top of that, where you're where everybody has a cell phone. It's just going to be really, really tough for them to compete. Yeah, nobody going to say anything. No, I was in the middle of sneezing, so I had to mute uh, myself. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> Actually, I was doing the same thing. <laughs> well, I don't think I, thought, I, I, I just thought don't my think point I can argue was, with. I thought my point was so amazing that everybody just like dropped. Yeah, we, 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 were like, all, well, we were all awestruck. Oh, Dave, awesome. has, Dave has stated it 
in the pure. Well, I just think that's even more nuts that if you combine those two numbers, so what do you have? It, at In 2010, if you had 15 million PlayStation 3s and 25 uh, million Xbox 360s, and that means that the absolute max that you could sell on the consoles in 2010 was 40 million. So with Call of Duty selling, what, like 10 million copies back in 2010, they were selling to a quarter of the install base. Yeah, that's exactly right, Rob. Like, I, I, did I just do math correctly? There we no, go. No, I mean, that's, but that's, yeah, I mean, that's exactly the problem, right? Yeah, like, everybody needs to buy these things. Everybody needs to buy your game to break even with, with this crazy model the AAA companies have. Yeah. And I, the reason the model's, the reason the model is just crazy enough is because it's worked for them for so long. They've, they've, they've had the huge profit margins for years and years and years on the consoles, but it's going away. And only the big home runs make those profits anymore. Well... I think we're going to see what happens with the new console cycle. I'm just, man, I, I know that, like, the game I'm most excited about right now uh, is Shadowrun Returns, which I think definitely plays into Dave's point right now that that's a game that is a risky investment, but they're able to do something, and they, they had a very small production cost, and so the potential for that thing to sell astronomically in terms of gross, in terms of the profit margin, is incredible. And that's, I think, where the industry needs to start pushing a little bit here. And if you, I, I just the fact that they're saying that Tomb Raider is a failure, that that scares me. That scares me for the industry. And I think that plays into what Dave's talking about with the AAA games. Like it's it's time to start. You know, Aliens Colonial Marines should have been forty dollars. At forty dollars or thirty dollars, that thing might have been profitable. That's Actually, the, that thing might have made money if the production cost wasn't so insane. But I think that pulls into a, a point John makes very often, which is that pricing of games is not as solid as we think it is. Like we, We've only experienced linearity in pricing structure. We went from 40 to 50 to 60 in general. And I think when you look at a game like Metal Gear Rising Revengeance, that game, no matter what anyone tries to say, is not a long game. You can play it multiple times, but a single play through that game, which is what most people are going to do, takes five to six hours. And that's fantastic. It's great gameplay if you like that. But it's really hard for me to say, I have no problem paying 60 bucks for a five-hour game. That's, you know, so I say, but if it's 40 bucks, if it's 30 bucks, I'm, I'm starting to really say, all right, yeah, I'll, I'll pick that up. So I think also we re- pricing is something that really is kind of in flux right now because of, you have, you know, $2 iPod games, $60 full-budget console releases, and ascribing value to gameplay and number of hours is a very difficult and murky proposition that I think is something that we're going to have to something is going to have to shake out something's got to give you all right so Derek's been very patient waiting for more news stories so let's give him more news stories go that's right we spent a really long time talking about business so uh, I think we should probably just try to breeze through these a bit if we can got four things to bring up today um proving that we do love JRPGs you know me included um, Final Fantasy X and X2 HD Remaster was officially announced for release in the West, which is very exciting. Looks gorgeous. Looks great. Uh, if you, I said this on Rhythm Encounter, but if you think that this is uh, simple upscale, it is not. I saw um, you. Check out. I saw you plug your show. I sure did. You uh, jerk. I know, but you know they've redone the textures. They're redoing the music. Everything looks really great and. I personally am very excited to have the opportunity to play through that game again, as it is one of my favorite Final Fantasies. Even I, wonder, I like Final Fantasy X. Well, even I, Kyle. 
I wonder what the production cost on that would be. Like, I'm, I'm just sitting here thinking, like, you know, how many copies does that thing have to sell in order to break a profit? Like, that they're not just doing a, a straight-up Rush HD job. How much money are they putting into that? That That's kind of like, yeah. hey, I, I'd be interested to see what Square Enix has to say about that game. They seem to be very, very quick to uh, say, oh, these other games aren't selling a whole lot. But, you know, apparently all the bravest just did that well for them. Well, it's also surprising that we went from, uh, you know, they announced this game a couple years ago when they had not said anything about it for so long that a lot of people thought that it was going to be vaporware, basically. And then we went from no information to them announcing a release date and saying that 10.2 is going to be included in the package, which, despite how you feel about 10.2, that's a really big undertaking for them to remaster not one but two games yeah, with, no. that, with, that, with that level of polish. I, I mean, if 10.2 is going to be remastered to the same capacity as 10 is, then that's like... That's a lot of work, and it's also a really cool value because I'm sure all of us expected to pay forty dollars for 10 HD, but we're getting two games. So yeah, well, I, I think that that's a great thing that they're doing. I think this is a smart business decision, and uh, I think it's going to really push a lot of other developers that are doing these HD remakes. I mean, I warn all the kids in the dorm, you know, hey, get ready to spend fifty dollars on an HD version of Wind Waker that they probably aren't going to add anything to it, and that's like. Now you have games like the Final Fantasy HD Collection that that's two games for 40 bucks. That's pretty pretty good. Yeah, I don't know that Wind Waker is the best example though cuz they are completely redoing that in a new graphical engine. They're not just up they're not just I know, you know but g- give me the two dungeons that they cut and then we'll talk. They, I hope they do add something to that. That would be cool. I I don't think they'll do it, but Nintendo right. when they well they didn't add anything to Ocarina of Time, but I mean it's it's kind of a crapshoot as to whether or not they'll add anything. I mean, I I could see them adding those dungeons back in because a lot of the content already exists. Like, you look at Chrono Trigger, a lot of what got added to the DS version was... Well, no, never mind. It wasn't. I take it back. Okay. More news. All right. So, uh, a game that a lot of us here on staff hold dear, most notably Steven, Borderlands 2 is getting Woo! a level cap increase and a new playable character which is cool. Um, it's going to be raised... The cap is going to be raised from 50 up to 61, and then they are going to be adding a new character, Krieg the Psycho. So that's going to be out on April 2nd, and if you're still playing Borderlands 2 like Steven, then you will be excited about that. Hey, a new difficulty and a new class of loot, too. Doing a good job of supporting that game. I think they're they're making... Well, remember, let's be honest, they have to support it. It's the only thing people don't hate from them right now. Well, that's true, but <laughs> remember how I said that the season pass thing really irked me for that game? I gotta say, they're making really, really good on that, and I'm I'm kind of hopeful that more companies do that. Uh, more companies kind of do this whole... I, I would like to know what they're working on when I sign up for a season pass, but I think the idea of additional content for a game that comes out in a timely fashion and you know what you're getting, I think that's a really cool idea. Hey, Bethesda. Let, let's keep note of this stuff and not release, you know, a, a, a mod technically to the game where I can have different colored uh, hey, closets. Let's not, let's not forget that Square Enix just added paid DLC to give you a crosshair in Tomb Raider. <laughs> what? Did they really? They did. It's, wow. I think it's 99 cents. and it's Like you need that in that game. I headshotted everything all the time in that game and I don't even play a lot of shooters. Yeah. That's not a hard game at all. You don't need that. Anyway, yeah. moving on, I got two more news stories here. Um, unfortunately, Fantasy Star Online 2 has been delayed in the US, or North America rather, which is a bummer because we heard uh, late, late last year, or maybe mid last year even, that Fantasy Star Online 2 was going to be coming in North America. 
And they said early 2013 originally, but now they have delayed it and said it will be out sometime. And they said they have no, uh, excuse me, puberty, uh, 25 <laughs> and I'm still going through puberty. Uh, they don't have any specifics, but they're going to update as soon as there's more details. So but, that, that kind of sucks. I was definitely looking forward to that. But hey, if you're playing L- the Japanese Steven's gonna, music. No, listen, listen to what Steven's going to say. He's going to talk about music. Watch. No, actually, I'm not. I was going to no. say. But look on the bright side. If you have the Japanese version, they just announced an expansion for you. So, yay. Yay. No, I'm just, also, I'll be, I'd be excited awesome. if it was out here. Also, the music is awesome. And finally, they have announced, uh, surprisingly, a new Etrian Odyssey game was just revealed. And it's not Etrian Odyssey 5. It's Etrian Odyssey Millennium Girl. And it's a remake of Etrian Odyssey 1. This is being remade for 3DS. And they are adding in a substantial story to it. So Etrian Odyssey is a game that we... I bring this up because we've been talking about it a fair amount on the podcast over the last couple of episodes. So Etrian Odyssey is known for having a really customizable structure where you get to create your own party, uh, your own characters, and and build them as you will. So this one is going to be interesting because it has set characters with actual personalities and voice acting. Um, You'll still be able to actually switch their classes and customize them, but it's putting a much heavier emphasis on the story. So that should be interesting. And... We don't know whether we're going to get this in North America, but in Etrian Odyssey 4, uh, there is a there's a selection in the menu. If you go to where you can share your guild card QR code, there's something that says create extra data. And there's also one that says uh, like generate Yggdrasil code. And both of those say that they're for use in future titles. I mean, really? that doesn't necessarily... Yeah, that doesn't guarantee that um, they're going to bring them out here. But those also existed in previous Etrian Odyssey games. You just basically like... Like, if you generated a code in the previous ones, uh, I think from beating the game, you got, like, a special item when you started the next one. So I don't know if it's going to be worth it or do anything really big anyway. But the fact that that exists was sort of a clue that another game was coming, but we did not expect for it to be a remake of one. We were expecting a five. I like so that's, Odyssey 4. It's was, really cool. Uh, I'm still playing Japanese. it. Yeah, imagine that. Kyle played a Japanese game. Like I'm this. still playing it personally. I, th- I, I think thought Kyle hated Japanese games. Yeah, don't, yeah that's just Didn't weird. you just write an article where you said that all JRPGs are terrible? Because yeah. that's, I mean, I only read the first sentence, but that's that's what I thought. <laughs> I'm confused. I thought we've been talking about consistency all, all day here in this narrative. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, all right. So uh, thank you, everybody, for listening to Random Encounter. Uh, be sure to give us message board postings and also to ask us questions on the boards. I had a guy who asked me a question a while back, and i got to remember to email him back. It's just been a crazy couple of weeks at school, so I haven't had the opportunity to do that. Uh, as you can tell, we did not talk about Digital Devil Saga this week. We wanted to do a Shin Megami Tensei like retrospective, and then we realized, wow, that's insanely large and kind of too big for one episode so we might try to revisit it later in the future and come up with kind of like a maybe are we going to focus on the side stories or the main titles hey we got another couple games coming out in the Shin Megami Tensei series so we got some planning to do in that respect uh so give us some likes on our itunes feed make sure to subscribe through the rss feed oh wait that's right google reader's gone now so well might as well just stick with itunes now really i can't believe they got rid of google reader it's all right. Just go to Feedly, and everything will be fine. Okay. Actually, that's that's what I just started using, and they even they even poured over all of your settings, so you don't even have to do anything to change. Feedly integrated with Google Reader all this time, and now they're just going to basically build out their platform and port everything over. Well, there we go. Dave is here to save all of you. So and it, looks, uh, it looks gorgeous on tablets too. So uh, thanks again for listening. 
for Stephen, for Derek, for Kyle and Dave. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you all later.